This episode of the Anti-Heroes Podcast with Zach Blair is presented by Thunder Road Guitars. Thunder Road Guitars is the Pacific Northwest's best source for premium, new, used, and vintage guitars, amplifiers, and pedals. Online or in their Seattle and Portland shops, you'll find fantastic customer service and a terrific vibe. I personally always make a stop at Thunder Road Guitars in Seattle. Uh, they're a great bunch of guys, and it's just not a complete Seattle trip unless I go and say hi and see what uh, wonderful stuff they have. These are real people offering real service, folks. Uh, use code ANTIHEROES10 to get 10% off at www.thunderroadguitars.com and tell them I sent you. Hey guys, this is Zach from the Anti-Heroes Podcast, and I want to welcome our newest sponsor to the show, DistroKid. DistroKid helps musicians get their music on all the major streaming platforms, and artists keep 100% of their royalties. Can you believe that? Anti-Heroes listeners get 30% off at distrokid.com slash VIP slash Anti-Heroes. Again, that's distrokid.com slash VIP slash Anti-Heroes. Thank you so much and support all the folks at DistroKid because they're they're doing amazing work and we couldn't be happier to have them on board. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors over at Jim Dunlop and MXR Pedals. We couldn't be luckier to have these guys on board with us. I personally use these products and you should too. Find out more about them at jimdunlop.com. Let's get on to the podcast. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors over at Jim Dunlop and MXR Pedals. We couldn't be luckier to have these guys on board with us. I personally use these products and you should too. Find out more about them at jimdunlop.com. Let's get on to the podcast. Welcome to the Anti-Heroes Podcast with your host, Zach Blair. I am Zach Blair, and I am so thrilled to be bringing you this particular interview with my guest today, Mr. Michael Dirks of the amazing and integral band, Guar. Uh, Guar are a band that, unfortunately, the musicians involved get sort of swallowed, uh, uh, pun intended, for their contributions because they are in monster costumes. I know this because I was a part of this thing for quite a while. I still dabble. I still get to go back in and do some things with them. And we talk about that during this this podcast, one of which is going to be a documentary that's coming out very soon. And I'm so excited for everybody to see that. So Mike and I get to talk about that. We get to talk about his influences, his guitar playing. I feel like Michael has not gotten enough accolades for what he does no one plays guitar like michael dirks i am such a huge fan of his playing and we get to talk about that so hopefully you will enjoy this as much as i enjoy talking to him i always enjoy talking to him he is one of my favorite people in the world i will shut up now let's get into this interview with michael dirks of the band Guar. 
Hey guys, with me is Mr. Michael Dirks. If you don't know anything about Guarang, you've just seen a picture. Mike is the guy with the bear trap on his face, and uh, he is Ballsack, the Jaws of Death. I am a lifelong fan of Michael Dirks' guitar playing. I think he's just amazing, and I had the privilege of being his co-guitar player in a duality for a long time, and uh, he's also one of my closest friends and just an absolute family member. So, hi, Michael Dirks. Easy. How you doing, buddy? Come dog, brother. Yeah, buddy. Uh, we played together for quite a while, and we have shared, just been close friends and uh, pretty much family ever since then. And I, I always consider myself so lucky. I haven't played with another guitar player in too many settings. It was you and now in Rise Against, and both guys were such unique, awesome, cool guitar players that brought their own thing to it. And I think the most unique thing about you that I found out afterwards, I always thought your approach your phrasing, everything you did was so interesting and from such a different angle than what I had grown to find in other metal guitar players. You were almost like an SST guitar player, like an art rock guitar player, like like Tom Verlaine from television or somebody, or or you know, David Byrne or somebody playing metal. And I found out it's because you didn't really have a metal background. Yeah, um, I mean, not at all. I didn't listen to metal as a kid. When I started playing guitar, the guitarists I I loved were always. I was coming from from kind of a, of a you know pop rock radio thing, but I would hear guitarists like Andy Summers, The Police, and like love that his guitar was so unique sounding and different. I wasn't listening to like Eddie Van Halen and you know and any metal at all. So I was drawn to these guys who were doing weirder stuff. So from Andy Summers, I was introduced to Robert Fripp and then King Crimson yeah. and Adrian Blue. And I just love the idea of making guitars not sound like a guitar, which Adrian Blue is probably the oh, greatest yeah. example of that. And that's what I strive to do in high school. And so I was playing these weird songs that me and my best friend in high school, Bobby Donnie, who went on to do some... <laughs> Some very cool stuff. He's in a band called The Bradford that um, does very art rock, right, atmospheric stuff. And but yeah, we were writing, you know, listening to Husker Du and the Replacements, and writing kind of that version of punk rock. And but yeah, I never wanted to be like the lead guitar player guy. And so when I got in Gwar, which was essentially at the time a punk rock band that was making fun of metal, and I was like, right. I can do that, I guess. Cause like I thought metal was, you know, Motley Crue back then. <laughs> I didn't really know anything at all about metal and I refused to buy or listen to anything for like the first five years I was in core. I was like, Nope, I'm not going to listen to Slayer. Don't want to hear it. That's amazing. I was writing songs for the first album. I was on scum dogs. I was like listening to like, okay. Um, Oh, she watched Planet Zero by Public Enemy. That's a Slayer riff. So I'll just rip off that riff and make a song out of it. And that'll be metal, right? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I have, a, I have a funny story about that. I was playing somewhere in South America with the Prophets of Rage, which is, um, you know, uh, Chuck D. And we were walking on stage with Chuck D and Slayer were playing that riff and he looked at me and goes, whoa, and pointed at them like, hey, this is weird. You should have run up and started singing if you watched Yeah, no shit. <laughs> but, you know, that is what made, I think, Guar so interesting. Finding that out about you was 
revelatory for me because I was like, that's why that band sounded was so unique and so different in their approach. Um, you know, for, for instance, the intro turnaround riff to Salamanizer, only you can play that. I've heard <laughs> bands cover that forever. And there's that weird turnaround thing that you do, that offbeat thing. And I think if you hadn't had that background and specifically, and that's also revelatory, Adrian Ballou and Robert Fripp, that that probably wouldn't, if it was just a run-of-the-mill metal guitar player, like a guy that was into Slayer or any other thrash metal at the time, they wouldn't have had those clever things, those nuances and those things happen. you know. And for me, even though I was in the band, I'm definitely a fan of our era and our guitar partnership, but you and Pete also extended and, and complemented each other so well as well. And Pete, more of a sort of metal guitar background, but also such an accomplished guitar player that I think he was able to sort of adapt your style in his own way and sort of, you know, have a conversation with you about it. But yeah, I, I specifically that intro, if anyone's listening, listen to the intro riff to Salamanizer. It does this thing where it turns itself on its head. It goes through like a different dimension and it's, it's really <laughs> difficult. And that's Mr. Yeah. Michael Dirks here. Uh, well, that that's good to know. And like I said, I, I was blown away when you told me that. And then it just made so much sense. But what you're saying um, about Gore, definitely it has always been like a partnership between whatever guitarists have been I'm playing with. And it's I've had been so lucky to play with such incredible players, like with Pete Lee and you and, and you. Corey, Corey Smoot. And, and now to get to play with Brent, it's just yeah. every time it just ups my own game and I'm forced to get better at the stuff that I don't really do, which is, you know, so I've over doing it for over 30 years. I've actually turned into a metal guitarist reluctantly. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? I'm going to go ahead and correct you on that. I mean, I remember when we were making the violence has arrived record and you had such a good grasp of Judas priest isms, like playing in fourths and things like that. You know, I was like, Oh yeah. You know, so you even had a better approach to metal than I did. And, you know, in a lot of stages and I would say with anybody else, but you know, you really did hit the nail on the head. You, man, the other guitar players in Guar have always been very, very good. And with Brent, Brent Purgison being, you know, man, uh, as well, just carrying on that tradition, you know, what a, what a great player that guy is. Yeah, I think uh, you can really hear it on our new album that'll be coming out in June. Um, just the how well me and Brent fit together as guitarists. You can we both get to really shine on this album. Like his guitar work is incredible. He does some of the best, most tasteful leads I've ever heard him do on this album. Awesome. And I get to really push the kind of sonic landscape stuff of guitar that I always wanted to do, and I've always tried to do. But like, there's a lot of like guitar synth stuff and. Our producer, Ronan Murphy, is very old school. It has to be a, a tube amp, like a Marshall guitar right. into a Marshall with a mic in front of it and going for very old school stuff. But he let me use some of my toys on this one. And I kind of wrote it knowing we were going to be working with him. And it's like I was going to have to come up with sounds that couldn't be produced any other way for him to let me use like some right. of it. Let's get into your gear because your gear has always been really interesting. And like when we were playing together, you were sort of a practitioner of the the triaxis that uh, Mesa Boogie, um, yeah. and now aren't you live? You're doing more of a, you're doing the Kemper profiler thing, which I've been threatening to do myself for a, for a while. But I'm actually using the fractal. But the... are you are you are you doing the fractal? Okay, um, 
I think the fractal is above my pay grade. I think Kemper, I can understand a little bit. I'm going to have to have you explain all that shit to me. But let's get into it just a bit. Um, do you know, like, so do you, what were you using when you first joined the band as opposed to, say, now? Well, when I first joined, I was using my high school rig, which was totally cobbled together. I think I had like a, a PV-212 combo. And then I used to made like a fake crossover by running it through this Ibanez multi-effects thing that I would use the parametric to like send the, I'd use the stereo outputs to send half of it to a, a like a 215 like Fender basement. And then the, I would EQ that for just all my low end. And then all the mids and highs were coming out of this PV. It was the most atrocious, horrible, cobbled together, weird thing. Is that what you used on the record on Scum Dogs? No, no. <laughs> the producer's like, there's no way you're using you're this. You're not like, using this shit. It's like every time we go to record, I pretty much am playing through a Marshall head. Right, <laughs> like, right. I think you and me both used my Marshall head, if I'm not mistaken, on Violence as a Right. But you might have used your Mesa Boogie on that, actually, now that I think about it. It's so, it's been over 20 years, so it's so hard to yeah. remember. And, you know, for the most part, I, I remember using like what I was calling go fast guitars, like we were stuff we were getting for free because. If, if you also don't know what Guar is, which if you're listening to this podcast, shame on you. But, you know, it, there's a lot of fake blood and basically food coloring and water and dyes and things like that. So you don't want to play like vintage Les Pauls and stuff. So and you when you first joined the band, were you using what was a hammer? Was it not? Yeah, that was my high school, my dream guitar from high school because, okay. of course, Andy Summers. Yeah. We played hammers all the time. And I was yeah. like, wow hell was that i have to get one of those i bought like a a hamer phantom when i was in high school like you know spent five hundred dollars on a guitar which was an obscene amount at that time and it had something the the coolest thing it had like what looked like a triple coil pickup but it was actually a humbucker and a single coil in the same housing so (laughs) yeah and if you want to get nerdier that's the guitar i believe that andy summers is using or has in the photo of the record he made with robert fripp the eye advanced masked yeah. like dual and he's playing that guitar because he normally use that hot rodded like telecaster that modded telecaster right. <clears throat> but he had a red hammer see this is the kind of nerdy shit that this podcast is 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 going to uh get way into so from hey the hammer what do you remember what your first sort of endorsement deal or who that was with and, who, and what you ended up using um we actually had a deal with gibson for a second you know and and at that time, it was like early '90s, and Gibson had just bought Steinberger. Okay. And so I got like one Explorer, and then I got a Steinberger from Gibson, and I, which I loved and played that the Steinbergers forever, and everybody thought it looked so stupid and retarded for this giant monster to be wearing playing this tiny guitar with no body and no head but i thought it looked ridiculous and i loved it i thought it looked great too and those are great guitars they play great they are i just i just got um one because i i destroyed it like playing it for so long and gore just was i ended up selling it but i just bought another one to replace it are you gonna play it I used it for um, a couple of fly gigs when we flew in, did festivals, because I could just put it in the overhead compartment. And... Well, yeah. Well, so so then from then, from the Gibson thing, was that when you guys entered the sort of Jackson and then Fernandez and then... Yeah. Yeah, you kind of started gotten into that. I remember when I was in the band, I got us a, a, a deal with that company, LAG, L-A-G. 
they were a French guitar company. That, yeah. I don't think they still exist. Do they? I don't think they do either. And I remember that the guys in Iron Maiden, specifically like Steve Harris had a lag. And then um, uh, Phil from Motorhead had a lag. And I think he, that was like his main guitar was like an Explorer. And they mm-hmm. gave you and me and Casey each a guitar. We used those for a while. And then we got the deal with Washburn. And we started using Washburn guitars. But I remember when I was in the band, I used your Fernandez. You had a Fernandez, what you called the X-Cops guitar, which because what you used in x yeah. I would just grab that guitar and take it on tour. I loved it. That was, yeah. that was a great guitar. Those Fernandez's were, were nice. I haven't played one in forever. I don't know what they're like now. But back they then. They were great. I remember they just gave you, like, it was like a room full of Fernandez guitars. Um, <laughs> what are you using now? What uh, What do you got now? I'm with Schecter. And actually, I'm on my second signature model for them. The first one was a Flying V. And now I'm doing Explorer shape again. It's funny because, you know, we've known each other for, um, God, you know, way over 20 years. And you're sort of family. And I don't recall ever receiving one of your signature model guitars. <laughs> And I recall, yeah. I also recall uh, writing music with you for the Battle Maximus record when, uh, unfortunately, Corey Smoot had passed away and you guys were looking for a player. And you were like, yo, Z, I just got a signature deal and I got a guitar coming. I'm going to send you one. That's what you said. <laughs> so you heard yeah. it here, folks. <laughs> hey, you got to play it on stage with Rise Against so. I, w- I totally would. <laughs> I totally would. Uh, anyway, I'm really proud of you. I, I'm, f- I'm joking around. It's amazing you have a signature model it, guitar, and much less two. It's, 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 it's long overdue, in my opinion. So do you think that your style, like, I guess you've covered it, but your style has changed over the years. Do you have a practice regimen or you just kind of like, do you just go for it? Yeah, I, I'm, or I don't practice at all. Yeah. The extent of my practicing is like kind of I'll fool around and try to come up with new sounds and experiment with settings and stuff. But you always did that though, you know, rather than take some like shredder lead, which you can do you would always come up with some really cool noise or some cool thing that blew me away that it like, the, okay, for instance, a solo to maggots. If anyone's you know listening, it's, it's like an elephant noise, you know? <laughs> and, and again, the Adrian Bellew influence yeah. and, and this thrash metal band that no one's expecting. It's purposely like not out of key, but it has no key. It's in no key, right. but still somehow fits in that part. Which is genius. It's fucking genius. <laughs> I don't, and that's why I wanted you on here because, of course, I'm partial because I love you, but I don't feel like you have gotten the credit as, as a guitar player that you deserve because people, you know, and that was a big, much to our chagrin, even when I was in the band, it was like, you know, Guar was like, oh, the great show. And they didn't talk about the musical contribution that was Guar. And, and my personal opinion and belief, you never got heralded for what you brought to that musical contribution. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to do this. So I've, I've been wanting to talk to you about this stuff for a, quite a while. You know, I know we, we got to talk about it when we were together, but you know what I mean? Um, so many people like, I'll see it like people. Say, oh yeah. You play bass guitar for war. It's like, and then if it's not that, then I'll see the rhythm guitarist, which always like, Everyone, every guitarist is a rhythm guitarist. You can't not play rhythm and play guitar. You're right. 
And so it's always sounded like it was a slight, you know, oh, he's the rhythm guitarist. He's like the second, second seat guitarist, you know? Right. <laughs> it's it's like, such a derogatory, it's almost like a derogatory term. Yeah. That's what I love about Malcolm Young, though. He wears that rhythm guitar tag with, you know, with it's a badge of honor for him. He's like, yeah, fuck yeah, I'm the rhythm guitar player, you know. <laughs> you you play this. You play it the way I do it, and we'll see, you know. Um, yeah. So do you think it's the gear or you? Like, the sounds you get, like, at the end of the day, do you actually think that it's the player or it's the gear? Do you think they go hand in hand, or do you think it starts with the player? Where's What's your opinion on that? It's, it's always the player. I mean... You know, yeah. if I'm playing an acoustic thing, I'm going to be playing it in a different, weirder way. It's, right. You know, it's just that the gear exists now, and it's changing every day, and gets allows you to do all these things we could never do before. Right. Which, you know, I'm kind of <laughs> it sucks that I'm older and slower to learn these things because I, there's so many things I could be doing that I just, you know, it's harder to figure it out because. Yeah, like you do get lost in the fractal. It's there's so many menus and it's ridiculous. Like my 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 new custom signature, I got a, a XY MIDI pad put into it, Jesus. so I can use that. It's like basically having like an iPad on your guitar. Um, I guess the guy in Muse kind of is where I first got the idea. But yeah, the Chaos music. Pad or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But, well, you've always I'm going to correct you, uh, like not correct you, but I'm going to disagree with you. You've always had a more of a penchant for the tech side of it than I have for sure. Even the Mesa boogie at the time, the triaxis, like I didn't understand that amp, you know, and you did, you were able to program that thing. You were able to do that stuff. And, and you were explaining to me how you single-handedly sort of put the whole guar show onto a click track and printed all your pedal changes and all that stuff. So let's talk about that a bit. Like where, what are you using like currently and what's your rig right now? Well, um, I mean, the heart of it is the fractal, uh, but yeah, as far as the show control stuff, we're using Ableton to, um, a couple tours back we were doing, it was controlling video and lighting cues and all my effects changes and, wow. and putting out click tracks for us to play along too. And wow. And, well, see right there, Michael Dirks, you're way over my head, <laughs> way over my head. Uh, I mean, I still, Les Paul, Marshall, pedal board you know i've been yeah. trying tried to talk into the kemper and it makes a lot of sense especially when you're guys like us that do a lot of flyouts it makes a lot of sense because they do sound great you can't argue with that either they actually they actually sound great i, I just love there's so many variables on stage with gore just the chaos going on i like mm -hmm. the idea that i could put my ears in and know that my tone's gonna sound the same doesn't matter what the humidity is on stage or you know it's like it's not going to change night to night stage to stage depending on if the mic's slightly different placement on it the you know the tubes are acting different one night it's you know it's right. i love that consistency of right you know, it's gonna sound exactly the same in my ear every night it's also I mean, God damn it. It's, it's like whatever you, you profile that amp with that tone that you have with whatever guitar, that's the tone you're playing with now. You know what I mean? It's almost like everything else is just an avatar for what, you know, and so it is consistent and it sounds great. There's no, there's a very minute difference. And it's like, if you can tell that, well then, you know, whatever. Yeah. It's like our producer was, says, well, you know, the modelers, they just don't play well in the mix. You know, they always you have to, it's 
too full and so you can't really put it forward in the mix and it always gets lost and like you probably have a point, but to my ears, they sound freaking right. great. And and my producers would totally disagree with that. Bill Stevenson and Jason Livermore and the guys at the Blasting Room. I've punched in on our records a, a track that I originally used my Marshall stuff with. I've punched in with the profile of that, mm-hmm. and no, and you you couldn't tell the difference. I mean, yeah. maybe the a producer with the crazy ears could tell the difference, but you know. And I, you know, I you've always been the guy that's explained these things to me. So I, I, you know, I feel like don't, don't, don't discredit yourself. And what's funny in your band as well is your co-guitarist Brent Purgison, who I'd love to have on this podcast as well. And I'll hit him up about that. He is a Marshall guy. He's like got he, the most amazing collection. He's got this wall of Marshalls. He's got at least like third. I think he told me he just spent here. There was going to be a tube crisis. So he spent like three grand on tubes Jesus because he to be able to tube all of his, he is literal his in his house it's this giant room of 30 marshals and full stacks he's got wow it's i've never seen a marshal collection like that and it grows like every month he gets something <laughs> and he works on them too he just he's yeah. he's able to Totally, you know, rebias, retube, redo everything, mod them out. Him and I talk about Marshalls every time I run him. Everything he says goes over my head because I'm like, I know what I like too, and I, I'm a Marshall guy as well. But when you get into like the the diodes and the you know all that stuff, I it just goes over my head. But I love hearing him talk, and I would love for I got a lot of stuff I would love to discuss with him. But anyway, um, so what's the biggest revelation of your guitar playing life? Do you think what's the biggest sort of aha moment you've had as a guitar player, do you think? Huh. <laughs> um, I don't know. What's yours? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think for me, it's, it's realizing and, and, and absorbing how different everyone approaches it, how differently everyone shows up to it. And I had, I got taught that, you know, I was always just the only guitar player in bands. And then when I had the privilege of playing with you, I just realized how different our approaches were and how awesome that was that we could accentuate and complement each other. And and it's funny because I left the band and I've talked about this a lot, but one of the greatest things of my musical life was the privilege of coming back after Corey Smoot, uh, unfortunately passed away RIP and I got to come back and play with you guys. And that thing with me and you was just there. I was, it was still there. It never gone anywhere. It didn't falter. It was just as if I just remember that first day I almost got emotional. I was like, I'm back with these guys. And it was beautiful. We made a great bunch of songs and me and you, it was like, we'd been on tour together. And so just that, I don't know that, that familiarity among guitar players when they're also speaking different languages, you know, yeah. and that vernacular we all share, I think was been a big revelation for me. Yeah. It's like when you play in a band with, with a, another guitarist, it's like people think of it, Oh, the guitar, the guitars, like, you know, music is such a collaborative art. It's different than any of the other arts because it takes being in a band. It's about taking ideas and everyone interpreting them in their own way and putting it together and kind of coming up with this whole that's been interpreted by, you know, four or five different individuals. And right. And w- when you have two guitarists, both interpreting the same material in different ways, it's, that's really a unique situation where it's like, yeah, of course the bass player is going to hear it 
interpret it different than the guitarist and the drummer is focused on different things and the singer is like thinking right. lyrically and melodically but the guitarists really are a lit, lot more joined in their approach but still you know weaving things in like in the new album i think we've gotten better at like writing songs and actually recording them like this album you can listen to it and it sounds you know like two distinct personalities playing different parts that come together and fit it's like very very few times on this record are me and brent playing the exact same thing it's that's great i remember you and i did that a lot too we sort of weaved in and out a whole lot you know we you do this i do this you know because we realized our strengths were usually each other's weaknesses and vice versa and then our strengths were sometimes both our strengths you know i i think that's what's great about a guitar team you know uh, why play the same thing at the same time? Why are you, you know, why be on stage if you're just doing the same thing? Um, it's not going to make it any louder if we both play it. Right, stage. exactly, exactly. Uh, do you have one that got away? Do you have a guitar that you've lamented that you got rid of? Um, I mean, there, I was talking about the Steinberger. I, like, really regretted selling it. Like, oh, I could have had it refurbished. And so I went and tracked one down and spent an obscene amount of money for one that's not the same as the one I had. I still, if I could find that mini red mini V, it was exactly like the one I had. But Yeah, because you played the V, the like, it looked like the wedge or whatever. Yeah, it was like a little cheese wedge. You know, it's not, it has just barely a hint of a body where like the regular Steinbergers were the rectangle. It had yeah. like a little slight V to it. That made it metal, I think. That was the metal sniper. I, I thought it was so cool because, again, you know, uh, people hopefully are familiar with Guar, but your your helmet is so huge, your shoulder pads, everything about your, your costume. And I think you actually have the coolest Guar accoutrement, which is your boots that make it look like a goat leg or something. And, you know, the way you stand, it's just like it's an optical illusion. And then you had this guitar that was like a traveler guitar, basically, that would fit – you know, on a, like a backpack or something. It was genius. Yeah. I thought that was hysterical. Um, <laughs> well, you know, well, I won't keep you too much longer, man. You know, real quick. Do you, is there a culture of your guitar playing? Is there something like, or, or a culture of guitars and this could be punk or rock or jazz or something like that. Um, could, could go back to your influences or anything. Like um, yeah. I mean, I would say punk, but that's not really true because like, Sure. I was listening to like the Sex Pistols and Ramones in high school, but still my heart was kind of, you know, in the police and the replacements and the little bit more alt yeah. rock thing. Yeah. Well, and I thought that was, you know, I always told people Michael Dirks is like an SST guitar player playing metal. And, you know, and you come from such an interesting place, Richmond, Virginia, where you have people like Penn Rawlings, um, guys that were SST guitar players, or, you know, am I personal opinion, it was almost like a Kim Thiel from Soundgarden. You know, it was those kind of guys or Greg Ginn from Black Flag that were almost improv jazz guys, you know, or were definitely influenced by Ornette Coleman or somebody like that. Well, my, my dad is a huge jazz fan. He um, had a great jazz collection that he would, I, he would play for me all the time. Whenever I go home, they're always listening to jazz and, and classical, but right. But my dad would, you know, when he was growing up, he was going to these little clubs in Chicago and seeing all these these guys like in tiny little bars. And it makes so much sense now, you know, and especially, you know, you're saying your influences are Robert Fripp and Adrian Ballou and a guy who cites those influences uh, would be, you know, Adam from Tool. 
and it's 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 similar. There's similarities there, you know. Um, you take that influence and apply it to metal, and there you go. Uh, I've always thought that about you, and I've always thought like, you know, in my opinion, I've always talked to other metal guitar players like, no, you're not listening to the genius of Michael Dirks. You gotta you gotta pay attention to this, you know. Um, well, anyway, and again, I consider myself so privileged to have played with you and to consider you one of my close personal friends. I love you, buddy. What a wonderful interview, if I do say so myself. I hope you guys learned something. I hope if you are a Guar fan, that blew your mind. Because Michael Darks is a mind-blowing individual, I think, at least. I mean, who would have known that he wasn't into metal when he joined Guar? Who would have known that Andy Summers was one of his hugest influences? This is Ballsack, the Jaws of Death. This is the guy with the bear trap on his face. And he loves Andy Summers. Anyway, thanks again for listening to the Antiheroes podcast. Keep showing up. We'll keep making them. We're going to thank you. We're going to thank the lovely, wonderful, amazing folks over at Jim Dunlop and MXR Products. If you're a guitar player, chances are you already have some of their stuff on your pedal board, in your cables, your picks, whatever it might be. Everything they make is great, and we couldn't thank them enough for supporting us here. Hang on there. I would be remiss if I didn't leave you with some brilliant Michael Dirks guitar magic. Um... In my opinion, I don't think anybody plays like Michael Dirks. You know, um, I had the the outrageous fortune of playing with him in a guitar duo, and uh, just studied was you know fortunate enough to study his style. And this is a perfect example of that. This is going to be the intro riff uh, to this the Guar song "Salamanizer" off the seminal Guar record "Scum Dogs of the Universe," which if you're a Guar fan, you have this record and you know this song we played it every show that i played with them i imagine they'd play they played this at every show they've played since but uh listen to this turnaround this intro riff there's going to be a little turnaround there nobody no no one did this like michael dirks i tried to intro this song a few times and you know i do my version of it but it, it wasn't dirks um dirks just gets his head and uh, around all these shapes and these different Mathy, I always called Dirk's playing Mathy, these Mathy little nuances. And uh, there's this little quirk here at the intro of this riff. So you you try to do it. Once again, this is Michael Dirk's amazing rhythm guitar playing. This is the song Salamanizer by the band Guar off of the record, The Scum Dogs of the Universe. Check it out. <laughs> 